sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the ongoing attacks on transgender people and trans athletes. Also going to be talking about how a British court ruled in favor of Wang Guaido concerning a billion dollars of gold belonging to the Venezuelan people. And it's Tuesday, which means it's time for our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsports, and host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Sean's always great to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Carly, as the attack against uh, the LGBTQ community and trans people continues, uh, in Oklahoma now, public schools will require that student athletes submit what they're calling a biological sex affidavit. And it's my understanding that this is literally a sworn statement that is supposed to verify um, a student's sex that they were assigned at birth. Basically, uh, in order to enforce a state law uh, designed to bar transgender athletes from competing in school sports. And I was just hoping you could break down more about just what is going on uh, uh, with this uh, affidavit and, you know, just how you see it connected to uh, the broader anti-transgender campaign that's really ramping up in this country right now. Well, this is, an, uh, this is a tenet of Senate Bill 2 that was passed back in March and signed into law in Oklahoma. And as you, as you described, it's basically, it's a legal written statement saying that I, the undersigned, will further acknowledge that I was, I was assigned male at birth or female at birth, and that's going to decide where my participation is. But it's not so much that people are signing this paper themselves, it's what it represents. This has nothing to do with protecting women's sports, and none of this ever did. What this is, is really, this is, this is another sign of the creeping fascism in this country. This is biomedical registering of kids. This is, let's have a genital exam without having a genital exam, even though that law also calls for that. It also calls for someone to prove that affidavit by, essentially, if you want to play sports in your trans, we have the right to check your pants. They're going to go back to the naked phrase in the 1960s. This, this law that you're seeing in Oklahoma is where I mean, there are there are at least ten other states that want to duplicate it. This is if I'm a parent, there's no way I'm signing this paper. I mean, my kid's junk is none of your business, and the state is making it their business. And this has nothing to do with with protecting sports. I'll tell you what it does have to do. It has to do with honestly this great replacement agenda that we're seeing from the right in this country. That's being led by the nose by the far right in this country. This is this is a step toward anti-LGBTQ registration. This is a step. This is another step in this continuing in this continuing rush to turn the United States into Gilead. This the anti-abortion agenda is served by this. It's all really the same, and it's bigger than just a kid in school just wants to play a ball game. 
Yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, back in March, uh, Republican Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed the Save Women's Sports Act uh, into law, uh, saying uh, during the signing ceremony, quote, when it comes to sports and athletics, girls should compete against girls. Boys should compete against boys. And let's be very clear. That's all this bill says. And so this this has become, I think, uh, a a common tactic amongst the uh, right wingers who are really pushing this uh, uh, agenda, Carly, in terms of they're taking transphobia and I would argue by extension sort of anti-LGBTQ bigotry in general and trying to wrap it in this noble uh, uh, veneer of, you know, trying to protect sports or in this case, trying to protect women's sports. And, you know, you know, on another way, maybe this is an aside, but, you know, if you think about just the struggle that it took for women to even gain access to uh, organized sports in different ways and uh, the real uh, history of that. I mean, that's laughable on its face if it didn't have such serious consequences for so many people, especially the fact that this is something that is targeting children. And so it's like this completely fake uh, uh, narrative that the right wing is pushing and the Democrats, the liberals that are in power, um, you know, seemingly doing nothing to really fight back against it. You know what I mean? And so it, it just seems like this whole uh, this particular front in what's called uh, uh, the culture wars uh, has a kind of, you know, virtuous, uh, uh, you know, charade, frankly, like they that they like to play. But in truth, as you're saying, Carly, it's all just part of an effort to attack an already very vulnerable element of the population. Yes. And they realize that those who would who would claim to be, quote unquote, allies are not going to fight when the spike gets high. That's what that also we have to talk about. We have to talk about the fact that the Republicans know that they can hit that they can hit people over the head with this and a lot of people are gonna buy it. And the Democrats are gonna be afraid and the Democrats say we can stand up to this but it will cost but it may cost us voters. They're thinking so much about an ele- about an election where they would get even where they realize that they actually stood up and stood and stood up and stood up to this creeping fascism, you get more voters because people are afraid of this. But it goes back to the, it goes back to, honestly, it goes back to those of us thinking in a more revolutionary mindset, actually getting out there and getting out there, doing the work, especially within the working class in this country and making people realize that they got you so ginned up with fear about transgender people that they're taking away a lot of pieces they're taking away health care from you when you're not looking. They're defunding public education when are not looking. Because that's part of what this is about. This is about really denial of health care and defunding public education. And they found an easy sell for a lot of people. This is a cheap mission sell. It is up to us who have a more radical mindset to let people realize that, no, they're trying to divide you to take more away from you when you're not looking. They got you so worried about this over here that they're hurting you over here and you don't even realize and you're falling asleep to the time that's going on. So that is when it comes to organizers like myself, like yourself, like Jackie, who are thinking in a more radical revolutionary mindset. We got to get in the game. We got to get in the game because the liberals are forfeiting the game. The conservatives are playing their game. We have to show people a very different game plan and, and, and do that work if we're to change this and change a lot of other issues as well. 
Definitely. And I want to swing back to a point that you kind of touched on a little earlier, Carly, when you talked about how um, uh, this attack on the trans community is connected to other issues. Um, I was reading about this on a piece on the Hill and they quoted uh, Aaron Matson, who's the executive director of Rep Pro Action, which is an abortion rights group, talking about these affidavits saying, quote, this has nothing to do with encouraging girls to be athletes. This is totalitarianism. It is the white nationalist agenda, the anti LGBT LGBTQ agenda, the anti-abortion agenda, it's all the same agenda. And that made me think of uh, an, an amazing chant that I saw uh, during the height of protest immediately following um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And the chant said simply that uh, reproductive and trans rights, same struggle, same fight. And this, I think, is a point of contention for some people, Carly, even among some folks who consider themselves to be progressive or even radical or whatever. They, you know, some just seem to feel that there has to be some separation between, you know, issues that are, are said to, you know, particularly um, impact cisgender women and try to separate that from trans women and, I, I, and, you know, transgender folks in general, I think. And that's just wrongheaded, I think, on a number of ways when you consider the very material way that anti-LGBTQ bigotry and women's oppression are directly connected under a uh, a capitalist exploitation. So how do you see it as uh, relevant or important to connect these kinds of struggles as we do this serious work that you're talking about, about organizing against this, you know, violent far right campaign? Because capitalism has connected all these oppression. You see, I one thing that uh, a thing that I truly believe in is all, all capital is, is organized. All the all the wealthy who are will ride down on us, all they really are is organized capitals. Capitals organized labor better bell be. And that's what we're looking at. Capital has organized these chains of oppression. We have to organize a response to them. Because at one level, what we're seeing here is simply fem- is misogyny femphobia. That's that's the first thing we're seeing with all of this. The idea that women must be subservient at at one level. Then another level you bring in the transphobia. With the idea of immediately people take that which we score in trans women and make that the face of everything. When the fact of the matter is reproductive rights matter to trans men. Trans men have ovaries. Non-binary people have ovaries. Cisgender women have ovaries. The point is, is that is that there's a possibility that you can be pregnant no matter where you line up, no matter how you identify. You are a target. So it is across, it is across the board. And see, I have a problem with all this framing about, well, it's cisgender women here, and it's non-binary people here, and they, and they have their separate issues. Yes, there are some separate issues, but this issue we're all in common on, because it will affect us all, it will hit us all. And Aaron Matson is dead on. I mean, I'm looking at the tweet right now. Because this is totalitarianism, this is very much a white nationalist agenda, and it's good that she's pointing this out and calling that out, and we need more allies doing that. Understand that, once again, this is an anti-democratic agenda, and this is a first step, and this is how fascism starts. They go after the people where you think, oh, it's not me, it's them, so I'm protected. And then eventually, they start eroding more eroding more. It's like an acid. You pour a little bit on, then it corrodes things, and then eventually it will get to you. It will get to you, and then you're going to find you're out of breathing room, and you're out of fighting room. We have to stop this now, and that means a dedicated 
workers' movement, a dedicated people's movement, because it's not going to get done in the sweep. This is going to happen in the street. Definitely. And, you know, this whole uh, anti-transgender campaign that's been uh, going on here, it hasn't just been operating in the realm of legislation. There's like this entire apparatus of reactionary uh, uh, government officials, media platforms, websites, you know, video platforms, all these sorts of things that that are all promoting this idea uh, in some way or another. And I know one uh, that you've highlighted uh, on your accounts, Carly, is uh, this boys versus women website that, again, sort of frames the issue of transgender athletes in terms of, quote unquote, fairness of, you know, uh, 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 organized sports. And so, you know, what is this site uh, all about and and how do you see it as contributing to this uh, uh, anti-transgender element that is ever growing now? Sites like Boys vs. Women, organizations like the Independent Council, the Independent Council of Women's Sports, as I call them, the, trans, the Transphobopalooza group, people like that operate by a simple premise. Transgender women aren't women, cisgender women are lousy at sports. Now, boysvsswomen.com is a website that is comparing top female athletes to high school kids and saying, for example, Sydney McLaughlin gets outrun by 10,000 high school kids. Never mind, if you saw Sydney McLaughlin at the, at the recent um, World Athletics World Championships that were held in Eugene, Oregon, she's a superstar. I don't care, regardless of gender, whatever, she is a superstar. No, no woman in history has run 400 meter hurdles faster. She's going, if she ran the open 400, she's taking down, I know she'll take down a record that's lasted since I was in grade school. So this is a great athlete by any metric, by any measure. But we have to belittle her because she's not a man. That's what that's what sites like boys versus women are saying, and that's what these people who claim to, to claim to be saving women's sports do. They they claim that we're protecting women's sports, but then they constantly belittle the exploits and the and the artistry and the excellence of female athletes. Now, I don't understand how that works. I really don't. How can you protect something when you're showing how much you belittle it? When you're, I mean, you know what that really is. That's just you wanting your 20 pieces of the patriarchy. And I really think, especially sport people who love sports, you need to be you need to be looking at this because this is going to have a knock on effect in the way that we view our sports. It's going to have a knock on effect on on kids coming up, especially little girls. Because how is it that you're going to tell little girls you can play, you can play, but then we're going to let some radio shock jock belittle you without a response. That's what groups like Boys vs. Women do. It's transphobia, misogyny, working hand in hand. And also, just another note, because I notice a lot of people say, well, it's trans athletes against women. Do me a favor. And Sean, that includes you and Jackie. Quit, talking, quit using the term trans athletes when you know you're talking about trans women. And that's for everybody. Quit dehumanizing transgender people because that's what happens throughout these discussions is that they start from the premise and people who should, and allies especially, don't let anyone dehumanize trans people. Don't give in to that framing. Humanize, normalize, understand that transgender people are just that, the people. Don't let them make the border automatons out of us, please, because that's where the fascism begins. Because if you can dehumanize a victim, it's easy to dispose of them. 
And this is not histrionics. You may think so, but this is what it comes down to. There are people who would rather transgender people not exist. And we have to be very cognizant of what the real stakes of this, of these discussions are. There are people who want women to be put in a place of subservience, whether they're cis or trans. There are people that don't want black people voting and tell you the truth, that they could go back to putting black folks back and change their will. And there are people that want child labor back. There are people that want to roll the clock all the way back to when the worker was a serf. Forget about capitalism. There are some people right now in this country who want to take us all the way back beyond fascism and feudalism. That's the real stakes of the debate. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them dehumanize you. And don't let them demoralize you. A better world is possible, but we have to take off our chains and fight for it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on, it's this very troublesome uh, trend and tendency that I'm that I've noticed sort of emerging on uh, elements of the nominal left, even amongst people who consider themselves a socialist and, and, and communist. And it's I would describe it as a kind of left transphobia. And how what this looks like typically is someone with a very twisted uh, idea of Marxism or dialectical materialism basically having the same analysis and conclusion of transgender people as any of the far right reactionaries that we could talk about. Now, this is a dangerous thing because it, it it's sort of promoted as, you know, uh, uh, you know, holding on to Marxist principles, supposedly, which is just like I said, it's a sick and twisted way of even considering and analyzing a uh, a Marxist analysis or Marxist thinking. But in reality, like we've been saying, Carly, uh, what we need right now in this moment is a real material solidarity. And I agree that folks have to be in the streets and it's just 100 percent clear because this is a life or death issue, literally, for a lot of people, especially with these things that are aimed at uh, uh, children. So what we need is to cut through all of this mess, all of this garbage and this reactionary thinking and really get serious about how we're going to organize and what we're going to do uh, to stop this uh, violence that's happening on different levels uh, aimed at this community. Well, it comes back to the kind of, it comes back to the simple premise that if your understanding of Marxism is strictly pale and male, your practice in the streets is bound to fail. That's what we're, that is what that is all about, which means we have to truly bring, we have to start within our movements. We have to bring anti-racism in our movement. We have to bring a, a, a solid united front against homophobia and transphobia in our movements. We have to be anti-sexist in our movement because if you, if you can't be anti-racist, you can't be anti-fascist. If you can't be anti-sexist, you can't be anti-fascist. You can't fight effectively when you're within, when you are bringing, when you are bringing the oppression of capital into the citadel of the struggle. And that's what, and that is going to have to begin. We have to have these discussions like what we're having right now in our movement. And that means we have to work, we have to go where the people are, but, and as we are working on, say, worker struggle, labor struggle, we also have to bring in these concepts of how, how do we make this, how, how are we stronger in a struggle? We're stronger together, which means you have to understand that the trans, that you and you have more in common with the trans worker than you do with the boss. You have more in common, if you're straight, you have more in common with the gay worker than you do with the boss. If you are white and blue collar, you have more 
you have more in common with your black blue collar counterpart is probably in the next station over over from you or the next cubicle over from you than you do with the boss. So it begin it begins that it begins with the organization. But as we're organizing, we have to bring the we have to bring the proper critical political education in with that organizing. As we're pulling people's coat to the struggle, we also have to pull people's coat to how how people are using these biases, using oppression to divide the struggle. Because that's the one thing they are most scared of. They're most scared of that if if parents of say straight children join hands with parents of trans children and say, we want affirming health care for all our children. We want better health care for all our children. We want safe schools for all our children because transphobia for a trans child is equal to it. To me, if you bring transphobia, homophobia, and racism in school, it's like bringing an active shooter in the school. That's the mindset we need. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Carly, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a British bank handing over a billion dollars worth of Venezuelan gold to opposition figure Wang Guaido. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ricardo Vaz, political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Ricardo, the High Court of England has ruled in favor of U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition figure Juan Guaido concerning an estimated $1.7 billion in gold currently stored in the Bank of England. And I know this is an issue that has been going on for some time. I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, uh, just what this means. I mean, will the gold be handed over to Guaido? Is this simply just a, a legal victory in a sense? And really, before we get to that, I was hoping you could get into the background of this whole issue of the Venezuelan gold that's been going on for some time. Yeah, that, that's that's a good place to start. I mean, we call it a legal battle, even though it's legal in a very broad sense of the term. It's essentially a political issue that goes back to October or November of 2018. And if we remember, this is even before Guaido proclaimed himself interim president. So. The Venezuelan authorities saw the writing on the wall with the sanctions escalation and, and continued what had been a trend to repa repatriate all these reserves that were abroad. And the Bank of England, for no justifiable reason, denied it in late 2019. And of course, that's because this Guaido plan had nothing spontaneous about it and was already in the works. And they, they were surely tipped by Washington that this was the way to go. And since then, there has been a legal battle that has yielded victories for both sides, for the Venezuelan government and for the U.S.-backed opposition. And it has kind of gone, it's, it's been a bit of a ping-pong match where it goes to a higher court and the decision gets overruled, it starts over again. 
And the, the latest ruling, you know, uh, moving forward a little bit, didn't exactly hand over the goal to, to Guaido as much as it did like the previous one, deny the access to, to the gold for the, the Venezuelan Central Bank, which is the, the rightful owner of this gold. So these are kind of piracy habits that die hard for the British Empire. And the, the, the legal proceedings are due to resume in October on the matter of whether uh, Guaido will actually be granted access to this gold or not. And a lot of water has gone under, uh, under the bridge since then. I remember during the pandemic, this was perhaps the most outrageous bit of the battle because Venezuela was struggling because of the sanctions to, to get medicines and especially to import vaccines. And they had the plan, which is which was pretty reasonable. I mean, these arguments by the opposition are ludicrous. And of course, by, by the, the US as well, that somehow Maduro is going to steal this gold. I mean, I don't know, can he just go to a department store and pay with gold bars? I'm not sure. But the Venezuelan government said, okay, I mean, if you're worried about corruption, we'll just uh, go through the United Nations and the United Nations Development Program will have the gold sold through them and also in in alliance with them we're going to buy medical supplies and even this was denied by the Bank of England and right now uh, it seems Guaido has the upper hand however uh, and we can discuss this I don't think the Bank of England is going to go as far as handing him control over the gold which would be a, a bit of a step too far I mean Besides, I mean, of, of course, these people don't have any concerns for international law or anything like that. They make the rules as they go along. But in terms of a, of a legal precedent, uh, everybody else would, would take notice if, if you can just create this kind of get-rich scheme. Get, get scheme. You, you proclaim yourself president, and if you have Washington support, then you, you'll just access massive reserves abroad. So I think what they're going to do is just keep denying access to the the gold's rightful owner yeah i appreciate you clarifying that ricardo because like you say it has been a lot of back and forth with a lot of moving parts in this case and i was hoping you would sort of go deeper into why you think the court may not go quite as far as actually handing over uh this gold to guaido i mean you touched on a little bit in your previous comments but i mean what are some of the uh broader dynamics that may impact that yeah so essentially uh, this has been a protracted battle in in us in uh, uk courts it has gone as far as the supreme court and then not back down and in a way the there are no legal arguments essentially being presented the judges always fall back on this one voice doctrine and regardless of how convincing the the arguments by the venezuelan side are they just say well we can't do anything because number 10 uh, the uk government has recognized this guy and we cannot have uh, a dissenting opinion. The last, the last uh, uh, trial was actually interesting because the Venezuelan uh, central bank, its, its lawyers brought up the argument that uh, the Supreme Court here in Venezuela, uh, which is the maximum judicial authority, declared that the, the authorities appointed by Rosa Guaido has this make-believe government and he appointed make-believe courts for the central bank and also for other companies that were put under his control. And the Supreme Court ruled that, of course, these appointments were illegal. And then what the, the Venezuelan lawyers were saying is that the UK judicial system has to respect the sovereignty of another country's judicial, judicial system. This is the maximum authority. And it's not for the UK courts to decide whether 
this is legal or not. I mean, the, it has to, to surrender sovereignty to Venezuelan courts. And again, the, the UK judge just said, you know, because number 10 recognizes Guaido, we cannot uh, have these rulings by the Venezuelan Supreme Court be binding. And so we have to throw them out. And that was more or less how that, that was more or less Guaido's latest latest victory. In 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 it's it's kind of a last last minute oxygen for him. Even if he doesn't access the gold, which would be more outrageous than everything that's gone on so far, it's kind of a political victory for him that because of his mere existence, because he doesn't have any actual consequences in practice, he's stopping the government from accessing and stopping the Venezuelan people from benefiting from everything that could be done with gold, which is not uh, a life or death amount, but it would be quite significant in this context. Yeah, definitely. And that really is the core aspect of this uh, to me, Ricardo, about how, you know, these are resources that uh, could be going to the Venezuelan people as they continue to struggle um, under U.S. sanctions. And so sort of the the fundamental uh, cruelty of the sanctions regime itself, I think, is just so um, apparent here. And, you know, I'm also wondering and I I always ask this question whenever (laughs) Wang Guaido comes up from time to time. I'm just curious, like, what, what is sort of the, the state of him at this point in terms of what kind of support does he still have outside of the U.S.? I mean, it's my understanding that that wing of the right in uh, Venezuela has a splintered a good bit. And it kind of doesn't seem like Guaido has a, a ton of uh, a support or a real network of people around him as he once did uh, during the height of, the, you know, the U.S.'s last uh, regime change operation in in Venezuela. And so, I mean, how is Juan Guaido even operating or, I mean, to use your word, existing as a political entity at this point? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, you, you were saying that Guaido did have some the momentum when he came onto the scene in early 2019. And it's funny that we have actually gone now onto the third British prime minister and Guaido is still around. And what, what I usually say is that everyone wants to get rid of Guaido, but because of the way this, this plan was hatched, they haven't exactly figured out how to do it. So Guaido, from the beginning, was a very junior figure in the opposition. It was just by a coincidence. It was his turn at the National Assembly, and that's why he just went straight to, quote-unquote, interim president. But his, his political... Uh, responsibility in Venezuela has always been minor. His political force is also much smaller than the others. And the, the longer it went and the, the bigger of an embarrassment it became, they became the other opposition leaders became sometimes more vocal, sometimes less so, that they needed a new plan, that they needed a new leadership. But because he retained U.S. support, they didn't figure out how to do it. And uh, on the other hand, when Biden took office, there are always these anonymous officials who talk to the media and they said they needed to change course and they needed to to, to do something different. But again, because of the of the pressure from the Florida the Florida groups and the likes of Marco Rubi and Bob Menendez and the fact that the Biden administration does not have the stomach to actually do anything based on principle, it it's just gone on drifting with Guaido until something different comes up. So, so at this point, he's just, uh, I don't know, a Twitter account. 
he does some some Zoom calls. In the beginning, he even ha he, he still had this leftover parliament that would meet sometimes, but now they don't even bother with that because they can't even convince the other opposition factions to go to him. And again, to, to circle back to my initial point, everyone's just looking for a way to elegantly ditch him, but so far it has eluded them. Yeah, I mean, that that definitely seems to be the case just uh, based on sort of my outside looking in sort sort of a, a perspective. And also, you know, on a related note, I mean, we're talking about sanctions, Ricardo. Um, how do you sort of see the, the gold sort of tied up in the broader issue of sanctions in Venezuela as uh, the people of that country continue to suffer under them and the government seemingly continue to be trying to do what they can to to alleviate that uh, as much as possible. Yeah, just just to to add something to the last to the last point, mm -hmm. uh, a significant development was the election in Colombia and the fact that leftist uh. Gustavo Petro won, and he, he hasn't even uttered the name Guaido so far. So that's going to be a huge bastion of support that he's going to lose. I mean, all these make believe officials had offices in Colombia, so it's not clear what's going to happen there. But it's it's. It was clearly a, a huge blow for him. As you were saying about about the about sanctions and how gold ties into the broader picture, I think what's going to happen is that uh, the United Kingdom is just going to continue embracing this role as a kind of junior partner to the United States, and the gold will be decided once the broader sanctions issue is decided. For example, if there are elections, and that is seen as a good turning point to again reestablish some kind of normal diplomatic relations, then the UK will, will release the gold. I think until then, they're just going to keep it in this limbo, deny, deny it to the Venezuelan government. And it's actually worth mentioning that because Venezuela, because of the sanctions architecture, Venezuela has kind of been blocked from, uh, from the financial markets. And so it has for a long time resorted to paying directly with, with gold. So in a way, this 1.7 billion would be very significant for food imports, for medicine imports, or even for uh, infrastructure work here in Venezuela, because that has become one of the main payment methods that the Venezuelan government has resorted to, precisely because of this financial persecution that has gone on. Other other bank accounts, it wasn't just the gold. The gold was the most uh, striking example and the biggest in terms of amounts. But Venezuela and the Venezuelan state companies had a number of bank accounts across uh, Europe and also in the US, and this is fairly common. You use them as intermediaries for all these international transactions, and all of those were frozen, and I think in total they must total some three or four billion dollars, and that, that's also resources that the Venezuelan people have been deprived. So it's just another, another chapter in this uh, economic aggression that the US uh, unleashed in the hopes that it would trigger regime change. It's clear that that has failed because of many reasons, many miscalculations and uh, a significant misunderstanding of, of the Bolivarian process and, and its strength. But for lack of an alternative and to save face, the White House is just going to continue with this, with this aggression, regardless of whether it's killing tens of thousands of Venezuelans every year. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up Colombia a moment ago, uh, uh, Ricardo. And in our last couple of minutes, I was uh, uh, wanted to ask how you see those kinds of regional dynamics uh, 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 impacting what we see happening in Venezuela. Yeah, the tide is clearly turning. It's not, it's not just Colombia. 
in October we have elections in Brazil, and uh, unless something extraordinary happens, it's going to be the return of Lula to power. And the, the two main U.S. allies and the, the two main Guaido backers here in the region suddenly disappear. And on one hand, I think that's going to make the, the regime change plans even more difficult for, for Washington. It's going to make Guaido even more irrelevant. But more significantly, I think it can, it can seriously boost, again, regional integration efforts that were the hallmark of the first pink tides, uh, quote-unquote, in, in about 15 years ago. And maybe now it can have a second wind with many presidents that, that have consistently denounced the, the negative U.S. influence in the region and go towards an integration process that puts the priorities of Latin American peoples first away from U.S. hegemony. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ricardo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Chris, it's being reported that uh, the Google's Nest uh, will be providing data to police, of course, without a warrant. I mean, that always seems to be the case when we talk about uh, this kind of issue. And I was hoping you could sort of break down first just what is Google's Nest? You know, if you could kind of describe that technology to us and then sort of break down what's happening with this data issue. Well, in the world of the world of doorbell cameras and home security, it is kind of a much smaller uh, or less popular version of Amazon's Ring. So they do very similar things. It's a doorbell camera. They've got home security features and things like that. So looking at uh, you know the way Ring last week uh, over the last couple weeks has said it's you know it hands out it basically hands out. Uh, information to police if they say this is an emergency so the police don't have to get a warrant uh, or any kind of legal document the police actually have a website where they can just go to amazon and say hey this is an emergency situation we need information uh from ring cameras in this area google is saying that they're going to do very something very similar basically actually the same thing google's document uh says that Uh, It'll allow law enforcement to get this information without a warrant, but it also could apply to any other data that you store with Google. And that's the really concerning part about this, not just the fact that we see this trend 
with these, uh, you know, these information disclosures and these, you know, the willingness of these companies to work with police and just hand information over. But the fact that Google, for most people, has so much information about us, our email, our calendars, our search history, our chats, all of those things, uh, you know, possibly even up to what websites you're visiting if you're using their Chrome browser and have the account sync uh, features turned on. And Google's examples of what they will give this information for is really concerning. It says bomb threats, school shootings, kidnappings, suicide prevention, and missing persons cases. So those are some of the uh, situations in which they will just hand over information to police without a warrant if the police say that this is, uh, you know, this is an emergency situation. Um, I have a background working with peer support organizations um, and, you know, mental health and what you would call, uh, you know, some people would call suicide prevention, but, you know, we actually called it, you know, peer support and, and, you know, providing people who are dealing with mental health crises or even suicidal ideation, you know, a place to just listen. And the fact that Google would hand over information to police, uh, particularly about somebody who is feeling suicidal, is really concerning because police don't help in those situations. In fact, we have seen time and time again that sending the police out to a, to a mental health crisis actually can make things worse and possibly even deadly for the person involved when they could have really just uh, sent you know mental health counselors or a peer in order to just sit and talk with that person. So that, that one really struck me uh, in particular with my background in peer support and mental health work in, in the context of technology. But really, the, the big picture here is that Amazon really opened the floodgates. They, they said, we're going to give out this information. Google basically said, we're going to one-up you uh, in our partnerships with law enforcement, and we'll just give any information you ask for over when you ask for it. Yeah, and I saw that there was a quote on Google's uh, TOS page concerning government requests for user information that says, quote, if we reasonably believe that we can prevent someone from dying or from suffering serious physical harm, we may provide information to a government agency, for example, in the case of bomb threats, school shootings, kidnapping, suicide prevention, you know, basically just what you were saying. And what what gets me about this, Chris, is that I feel like at this point it's it's documented that, you know, the, these ring cams in their different iterations actually don't have any positive impact on, you know, either these types of issues or crimes or what have you. I, I mean, you know, based on what we know at this point and yet and still, we continue to hear this narrative that this surveillance is somehow going to make people more safe or uh, uh, potentially offer uh, a place uh, uh, for people to be able to reach out if they're in crisis. And I just feel like after all this time, there's just no proof of this. There's just no real evidence to the point that you were making with 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 your experience there at that center you know what I mean and so I mean it's a it's definitely a dangerous narrative to me that both these tech companies and law enforcement continue to push as if we're being made more safe by this technology when in reality it just can become yet another avenue through which the state can surveil us yeah certainly we have no proof anywhere that these types of cameras, these devices, uh, these you know, this surveillance actually helps to prevent harm or prevent crime. It, there is just no proof. You know, and, uh, Amazon with its Ring is really just always pushes the idea that. 
they are able to, uh, you know, they're working with, you know, hundreds and thousands of police departments across the country. But really, the only times that they talk about any sort of, quote, success, you know, is very individualized cases. They don't provide any kind of information about, you know, to say, oh, well, we've prevented, you know, this many crimes uh, or, or this many, you know, assaults, murders, whatever it is. Um, that's that is something that we really need to be considering when we're looking at, you know, the, the further militarization and uh, use of surveillance technology by police departments. You know, San Francisco uh, kind of famously is. is rolling out or has rolled out a, a just a city-wide uh, surveillance network with private and public cameras. Uh, and the government there wants to just basically give police access to the entire, that entire camera system. But again, there is no proof that any of these types of things solve, you know, what anything from major crimes to package theft, which is one of the, you know, often, you know, you see the, uh, you know, somebody stealing a package off, off of a porch on one of these cameras. But there has, again, been no proof uh, or no studies that show that crimes are even solved by these cameras, let alone prevented. Yeah. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, I wanted to also talk about how Instagram uh, seems to be planning a shift in their platform, uh, basically to be more uh, short form video based, kind of along the lines of TikTok, which definitely, you know, seems to be what a lot of different platforms uh, are doing in some form or fashion. I feel like YouTube does this with its shorts. I think we see this also on uh, Facebook. I mean, we just see this explosive popularity of TikTok and the other social media platforms are trying to follow suit, but uh, uh, they're getting some pushback from users, including some pretty uh, prominent ones. So what's happening with uh, Instagram and this, uh, you know, this desire to, to shift around what's happening there? Yeah, I think we can say it. You know, Kylie Jenner saved the day for us, uh, at, least, <laughs> at least for now. Uh, never thought that I would say that phrase, especially in the context of Instagram, but there it is. You know, Instagram uh, put out a, a statement uh, last week, um, you know, or basically said it was going to start doing more video, more the short form video that uh, TikTok has really made famous. Um, and then, you know, on Tuesday morning, the uh, one of the executives at Instagram, Adam Mosseri, did a whole video, and it was a long-form video, by the way. It was a few minutes long. It was not a short, um, explaining what they wanted to do, what Instagram was trying to do. Um, you know, saying that they wanted to pivot to video, but they would still support photos. Look, Instagram started and really gained its popularity by being a place that you could share photos with your friends. You could do the filters and make it look cool and do all of those things. But if you think, you know, for those people who have used Instagram for more than a couple of years, if you think back to the way it was then, yeah, it was, you know, pets and meals and things like that, that people enjoyed because they wanted to keep up with the people that they know. Now, if you scroll through Instagram, you see a lot of content from pages that you don't even follow. It's kind of like on your Facebook feed or even on Twitter now. Instagram really is saying what they're saying is we need to grow. They're saying that they are falling behind TikTok uh, and that they need to continue to attract new visitors so that they can attract more ad money. Because, again, that's what Instagram is now. It's part of Facebook, well, part of Meta. 
Uh, it is an advertising company. Uh, because of that, they want to collect more information about what you're seeing so they can show you more sponsored or promoted posts. And sponsored and promoted posts are advertisements. That's really what they are. It's a, it's a nice phrase to, to hide the word advertising. The problem really, you know, we have to look at this, I think, tomorrow, you know, in, in terms of the entire social media landscape, right? It started as places that we could just keep up with our friends and chat with them and see what they were up to, get life updates as people, you know, were in school and then moved away and then all of those things. And it's turned into really a place to gather so much information about us in order to sell ads. And that's the problem is that they've taken advantage of this sort of just this feature of humanity where we want to be social. We want to keep up with each other. We want to know what our friends and loved ones are up to and even so what celebrities are up to. And they've taken advantage of that. And they're saying that, you know what, we, we're going to let you do that kind of, but we're going to monetize that. We're going to take advantage of everything you interact with, whether it's a business or a personal post, and use that to, to sell your data to advertisers. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm even thinking of um, like how Instagram shopping has uh, become a thing. I think they even put a little shopping bag uh, icon type thing up in the in the corners. So, you know, you're sure to know uh, uh, when these deals or whatever are happening. And I definitely uh, uh, feel what you're saying. I mean, even just, you know, as a user of social media, I definitely uh, experience a lot of, you know, seeing people come across my Twitter timeline that I don't follow. I'm, I'm seemingly being shown them because someone that maybe I follow or follows me interacted with it. And I mean, it can get kind of irritating and honestly just makes me, you know, mute a bunch of people because it, it can just get frustrating when you keep seeing things that you did not elect to see. And so seeing this shift uh, with Instagram, I think has been quite interesting. Also wanted to touch on this issue with you, Chris. Um, uh, this was published in The Verge and about how this uh, uh, AI technology uh, suggested 40,000 new possible chemical weapons in just six hours? Oh, what, what is this about? Yeah, this is a story from a, a couple months ago, actually, but it's been resurfacing because of uh, because some new papers have been published on this, some scientific papers. And I think it's so important to, to re-highlight this in the context of the papers that have been uh, recently published or, or about to be published. Yeah, I mean, some researchers said, hey, we want to uh, we want to use AI to discover potentially helpful drugs, medications, substances, things like that. And then it turns out that uh, they said, well, what if we tweak the what if we tweak the settings here? What if we said, give us the most dangerous, not the most helpful? And then all of a sudden they get tens of thousands of what they call potentially lethal combinations of chemicals um, within hours, six hours, they say. And looking at the way that they put together, you know, the code, again, it was something that was started out being, you know, for good, for research purposes, uh, to say, you know, what kind of drugs can we, you know, create and synthesize to target cancers and other diseases. Um, but then if they just tweaked one little setting in there, all of a sudden, bam, 40,000 deadly chemicals came out of this. And so it really goes to show, again, this, this thing, I think we, we hammer at home all the time in our discussions that we have to consider 
not just can we do something, but should we do something? What is the what is the purpose of a tool like this? What are the potential bad outcomes of this? It shouldn't be an afterthought that what if we switch one setting in our code here? That should not be something that you think about as a researcher afterwards. It's something that you need to be considering before you, you develop and use this kind of technology. Yeah, definitely. And that makes me wonder, Chris, not even wonder what I, th- what I think it says is that the way that this sort of tech is even approached just has to be fundamentally different. I mean, j- just completely uh, different from how it's it's uh, uh, sort of currently construed. And I don't know if we can attribute this to, you know, the fact that a lot of these things are produced by corporations that are, of course, these for profit entities and, and things like that. I don't know if it's just uh, the profit motive that is an aspect of it. But like you're saying, when we don't ask that question of should we do something before we do it, bad things can happen, sometimes very bad things as we're finding out. You know what I mean? And so this is, a, I think, a broad question. But I mean, in terms of like at the systemic level, like what do you think should be done uh, to perhaps maybe reshape or rethink the way that uh, this tech is considered and for its uses? I mean, to ensure that it, the tech is actually operating towards the greater good instead of potentially harming people. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is the profit motive certainly has a lot to do with this. Uh, even, you know, this this specific situation may not have been driven by the profit motive itself. But if we look at a lot of medical research, that certainly is the case. You want to, you know, get a patent, you want to sell it, you want to, uh, you know, make a name for yourself even so you can get a job at a you know research lab or a drug company and things like that. I think, you know, Companies like Google do hire, you know, AI ethicists, and not just Google. I mean, many companies, from biotech to to big tech, they do hire, you know, AI ethicists and things like that. But often, what we see is that when those when those folks speak out, they are marginalized, they are fired, they are slandered. So, it we do need to remove the profit motive, but we also need to really consider, you know, in even in a system without profit motive, in, in a in a non-capitalist system, a socialist system, there still has to be a focus, you know, put onto how do we use technology? How do we implement new technologies? And do we? And really, it has to have conversations that involve uh, not just the you know the so-called experts, the ethicists, the technologists, the you know the MDs and the PhDs, but also the people who are going to be affected by that everyday working-class people who are going to be affected by these new technologies and. You know, we don't need to move fast. We need to move smartly. And I think that's the big distinction that needs to be made in cases like this. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, uh, in the last couple of minutes, Chris, I actually wanted to swing back to our um, conversation on Instagram, because, you know, I think a lot about how these uh, uh, social media sites, you know, have come to factor into our everyday lives. And I think that, you know, these corporate entities, which they are, um, I think they recognize that and and operate accordingly, which is why they sort of make a lot of these uh, types of shifts that we see, you know, Instagram proposing and, and things like that. And so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, if if you see a, a detriment to users for uh, some of these changes, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or what have you. And if it's a situation where, you know, out of a, a, a proposed desire to do something positive that they may, you know, in, uh, in fact, end up having a negative impact, almost similar to what we were just discussing with the A.I., 
Yeah, we already know based on the Facebook files, you know, that were leaked uh, last year that Facebook knows that its platforms actually can have a negative effect, uh, particularly on the mental health of teenage and preteen girls because of the way that it surfaces certain content. YouTube knows that it has a problem where its recommendation engine uh, often surfaces content, you know, based on like white nationalism and straight up, you know, racists and neo-Nazis. This has been shown time and time again through anecdotal evidence, but also scientific study uh, that, you know, these platforms, because of the way their alg- algorithms are tuned for engagement rather than good, uh, that this is the way these platforms work. So, you know, the idea of social media, not necessarily a bad thing, but the effect the effect and the impact it has on people, on the people who are using it, actually can be extremely dangerous. So again, we should step back and say, okay, is social media bad? Not necessarily. But how do we implement it? What is what is it that we want to get out of this? Do we want to just see what our friends and Kylie Jenner are, are up to? Sure. Do we want to, you know, be influenced uh, politically by that? Well, it depends, you know, who's doing the influence? You know, is it somebody spending millions of dollars in ads or, you know, is it news about what's going on in the world? So really, it's, again, considering the, the impact that, you know, that, that it has when we're looking at really the, uh, you know, the difference between a positive impact and the impact that a monetized platform can make. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at footnicknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.com dot mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time each weekday and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on rumble 
right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, today marks 96 years since the birth of irreplaceable black writer James Baldwin, who was born on this day in 1924. And keeping with the spirit of Black August, I wanted to play a commentary that Baldwin published following the assassination of political prisoner and Black Panther George Jackson, who, in my opinion, stands as the guiding light of Black August. It's difficult to talk about this because um, there are two things. I'm haunted by the face of his mother, because it might be my mother. And I have brothers and sisters. And I've been haunted by the face of Jonathan because it could have been my brother. I'm trying to say that beneath the political implications of this bloody event, there's also an anguish which has endured in my country for nearly 400 years. I think this anguish has some implications for all the countries of the West. And I think that one has the right then to suppose that the burden of proof is on the American authorities and not on the people who contest this particular story. I myself have lived through too many murders and too many assassinations to believe a word that Nixon or Reagan or John Mitchell or any of the other American authorities say. I do not believe that a boy can hide a gun in his hair. I do not believe that a maximum security prisoner can receive a visitor who is neither questioned nor identified. I challenge California to identify Madam Anderson, who carried something in her shoe, I think. I think that we, if we really are going to be serious about this, and to prevent another murder in another prison, or in another American street, or on a French street, I have to assume that we have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. I know very well what it is like to be a black man in America. I know very well that the intention of the American Republic, which after all comes out of Europe, was to keep black people slaves forever. And I know that now that black people have discovered in their own minds, in their own hearts, that they are not what they are told they were, that America is on the verge of panic on the verge of civil war. I scarcely know how to be in any way objective this afternoon. For me, there's been Medgar Edwards, who was murdered in Mississippi, and Malcolm X, who was murdered in New York, and Martin, who was murdered in Memphis. and Huey in jail, and Bobby in jail. And one begins to wonder how long 
Why don't you keep paying that bill? And what I want to suggest this afternoon is that instead of paying it endlessly going to funerals, endlessly seeing widows, endlessly seeing corpses, endlessly being told lies, that we challenge them. I want Ronald Reagan to write a letter to me and to George Jackson telling me exactly what happened in that prison and how he knows. I want Nixon to confirm it. And the Attorney General of the United States and his charming wife to tell me why we are still in prison and at their mercy. As long as that is so, the entire Western world is doomed. Rest in peace to James Baldwin and George Jackson, free all political prisoners. Be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Rachel Hugh, an organizer and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. And we're happy to have you on as always, Rachel. And of course, as I'm sure everyone is aware, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi has in fact landed in Taiwan despite warnings from the Chinese government and the White House with her trip uh, prompting protests both inside the United States and in Taipei. Uh, she issued a, a statement saying that uh, uh, basically the, the United States uh, considers uh, a part of China, quote, in no way contradicts the adherence of Washington to the one China policy, but instead, quote, honors America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. Now, uh, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, of course, uh, uh, reacted pretty strongly to this. Uh, there's been several warnings from the Chinese government at this point, saying that the U.S. is, quote, playing with fire and warned that those who play with fire will perish by it. With the ministry saying in a statement, China and the United States are two major countries. The right way for them to deal with each other lies only in mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, no confrontation and win-win cooperation. The Taiwan question is purely an internal affair of China and no other country is entitled to act as a judge on the Taiwan question. China strongly urges the United States to stop playing the, quote, Taiwan card and using Taiwan to contain China. It should stop meddling on Taiwan and interfering in China's internal affairs. It should stop support. Excuse me. It should stop supporting and conniving at, quote, Taiwan independent separatist forces in any form. It should stop its acts of saying one thing, but doing the opposite on the Taiwan question. It should stop distorting, obscuring and hollowing out the one China principle. So, yeah, I mean, what Pelosi did here, Rachel, in, in making this visit to Taiwan, despite all uh, uh, warnings, I mean, it, it's pretty reckless and I think downright dangerous, particularly given the state of um, <clears throat> geopolitics at this point. And it's clear that the Chinese government has uh, a deep understanding 
of just what the, the U.S. is doing here and what this visit from Pelosi actually mean, despite her pronouncements that it's just, you know, some whatever uh, uh, type of thing. And, you know, I, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, the dynamics and the context that led up to uh, the war in Ukraine. And it feels like there may be a, a, a similar dynamic at play here. And so just sort of generally curious your thoughts on uh, Pelosi's actions here and, you know, what you think the implications might be. Certainly, Sean. I mean, I think there's no other way to interpret this other than the fact that this is a major escalation on the part of the United States. I mean, Pelosi is a, a very, very high ranking political leader. I mean, she's the incumbent leader of the U.S. Congress. This is like I think it's something like she's third, in essence, underneath the president. This is not a, a random delegate from Ohio visiting Taiwan on a family trip. That's not what's happening here. This is without a doubt a U.S. provocation towards China. And I think that the Chinese government and the Chinese people are responding with the kind of same level that one might respond if that happened in the United States. I mean, you have to imagine, to put it into context for people who don't fully kind of get what's what's being said here, is that by Pelosi visiting and a U.S. official visiting Taiwan, they're recognizing the independence of Taiwan in a way that's in complete opposition to what has been not only the U.S. policy since the 70s, but China's official policy and, of course, the policy that the billion of people in China believe in. I mean, like, it's really crazy to me to imagine that the entirety of a country and a nation like China, they all recognize that there is only one China. There is not a separate China. There is not multiple Chinas. There is one China. And that is what the people of China, that is the will of the Chinese people in that country, that's what they believe. And that's also the official policy of the United States as well, to have one China. So when Pelosi goes here and says that I'm going to visit Taiwan as if it's a separate entity. It's to spit in the face of that entire concept that there is only one China. So like to go back to the example of what it would be like if we did that in the United States, it's almost as if in the United States, there was a small little island and some people off, off the coast of Florida or something like that. And where all of the people who were maybe part of the Confederacy, which is a really good example of the separatist movements that exists in the United States. I mean, imagine if all of the leaders who were defeated in the Civil War during the Confederacy all went to a tiny island off of Florida and says that we are the real government and that China goes and visits with that small group of people who are absolutely clearly insane because nobody in the United States would except that the side that lost the war, the side that is not in power at all, and just individually says, yes, I, I am the leader of this country, that you would meet with them and say that this is official and legitimate and okay. So, I mean, it, it's not the best analogy, but it's an analogy, I think, to understand the weight of what's happening here. And the statement that you read from is a really important statement because it really does put, without any sort of vagueness and complete and utter clarity, that if the U.S. escalates in this way, China will respond and it will be the, the the fault ultimately of the United States for making such a choice. Like China is willing to go to war because this is an absolute disgusting disrespect of the sovereignty of China and the Chinese people. And the United States is absolutely calculating in this. This is not an independent idea that Nancy Pelosi had and wanted to do on her own. I mean, in some ways, even I'm not sure what you think about this, Sean, but I kind of feel like that the whole gaffe that, oh, that Biden had earlier this year about Taiwan 
specifically, I just felt like, you know, maybe maybe it was a gap in the sense that Biden let slip what the new policy clearly was going to be in, in the Biden administration, or perhaps it was to, to kind of get us ready for the direction that they plan to go. But without a doubt, you know, we can really see that the Biden administration is moving in a direction that is dangerous. I mean, this could lead to World War Three. This is not something to be played with. And we have to pay attention to it, especially like you mentioned, after everything that's been going on in Ukraine. In some ways, the United States, even during the whole process of, of of the U.S. bolstering Ukraine, giving all this aid to Ukraine. There's also been this weird secondary conversation about China being next when the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so the, you can't help but feel that there is a connection here. But I, I'm curious what you think, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that Nancy Pelosi actually published an opinion piece in the Washington Post, uh, basically explaining and justifying why she's uh, leading this congressional delegation to Taiwan. And it's just like the, like the duplicity of this always kills me, because on the one hand, they'll say, oh, well, you know, we just want to celebrate Tibetan uh, democracy or whatever. But in this very piece, uh, she literally says, quote, we cannot stand by as the CCP proceeds to threaten Taiwan and democracy itself. Indeed, we take this trip at a time when the the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy. There that is again. As Russia wages its premeditated illegal war against Ukraine, killing thousands of innocents, even children, it is essential that America and our allies make clear that we never give in to autocrats. I mean, to me, this is just soaked in, you know, so much hypocrisy, imperial hubris, and just outright lies. But I think it really exposes uh, the thinking of a Nancy Pelosi and that wing of the uh, uh, imperialist ruling class. And so uh, Nancy Pelosi within this piece says, you know, several times that Taiwan is uh, under threat and that it's 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 democracy and its governance and all of that is under threat by China, the country of which Taiwan is a part. Uh, this is something this is a point that, you know, this is not just the ravings of some, you know, crazed radical on 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 Russian media, but the United States itself agreed to just that point in the one China policy. But as we've been pointing out on the show, the U.S. government, little by little, has been uh, sort of uh, attacking and frankly just going against both the letter and spirit of uh, the one China policy. And this is what, you know, that uh, statement I read from earlier was talking about in terms of, you know, uh, the U.S. Uh, supporting the separatist uh, elements and things like that. And I think you're right, Rachel, that, you know, the U.S. would not uh, for a second tolerate uh, another country doing uh, such a thing here in the States. Uh, you know what I mean? And it's just like it's not surprising, but it's just it just continues to, to really strike me how little these imperialists seem to care for uh, global humanity, to be frank. And if we're looking at it from the standpoint of both the war in Ukraine and uh, uh, this issue with Pelosi in Taiwan, starting first with 
the war in Ukraine, uh, which is a proxy war that the the U.S. is actually waging with Russia that, you know, uh, could uh, that could potentially lead to an open conflagration between the U.S. and Russia to nuclear armed countries, which would have devastating impacts on humanity. And then uh, similarly, we have this, you know, you know, completely ridiculous provocation from Nancy Pelosi making this trip uh, uh, just to prove a point that could also have a serious military implications. And like I say, we don't know what's going to happen, but uh, even still. And so, and you know, (laughs) Rachel, this is exactly why we on the show, this is why we call, you know, the capitalist U.S. a, a death cult, because if these things continue unchecked, the U.S. ruling class, the capitalist class, will plunge humanity into oblivion. And as such, I think that uh, the progressive minded people of this country and really the world uh, uh, need to be organized to really fight back against this, to pull humanity back from the dark future that the capitalists seem to want to push us into. I mean, ever since even 1979, that was the last time ever since then that the U.S. never had a head of state and no leader of the ruling party to visit Taiwan. You're so right. For this kind of provocation at this moment, when literally we're in a position between the U.S. and China where the the tensions couldn't be higher. I mean, this is a, a major moment in time where the United States is absolutely unwilling to cede on any level, even a multipolar world, even some level of, of, of allowing for other other countries or other nations to grow and develop and have their own individualized agendas, the U.S. will cede none of that ground. They want complete and utter hegemony at any cost. And you're so right that that cost is nuclear war. I mean, they've been prepping us for months. I mean, I don't know if you've been seeing all this craziness on the news where there's just statements being made like, oh, you know, you could survive a, a nuclear blast or how, you know, how to get prepared under your desk for nuclear war. Like you cannot survive a nuclear war. It is absolute death and absolute destruction in every way, shape and form. So we cannot be lulled into any sense of uh, of lies in that way. Like we cannot believe for one second that we would survive if there were ever to be a real nuclear war between the U.S. and China. There will be mass deaths. And the U.S. ruling class really, Sean, is so hubris. They're so they have so much hubris. They're so full of themselves. They really believe that on on the domestic level that they can implement policies that the vast majority of people don't agree with when we're talking about Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court, which rules for life. I mean, ultimately, the Supreme Court in the United States is a dictatorship. The U.S. on every single level is a dictatorship. This foreign policy with China, to me, reflects a dictatorship. I didn't vote for this. You didn't vote for this. People in the United States are not saying, yes, we want to escalate a war and potentially all die. That's not what people are calling for in mass in the United States. And just on an anecdotal level, like you go around and talk to people, there's a lot of anti-China sentiment in the streets. But do does everyone you talk to say, yeah, I'm willing to let my brother, my sister, my cousin, my family? family members all die for this. Not necessarily. I mean, this is outrageous because this actions of the U.S. government are not reflecting what the people of the United States really want. And they're absolutely full of themselves to believe that you can just go and move on a, a sovereign nation like China and, and, and do things like this without meaningful, serious repercussions. And of course, we're the ones who are going to pay the repercussions. Everyday people are the ones who are going to ra- pay the price of war. It's never the wealthy. It's never the rich. But I think that to me, 
what this says right now is that there is a need for people to be moving into the streets to talk about what's going on and to really raise awareness that we have no interest as the people of the U.S. in waging this kind of a war. And that at the end of the day, the United States government is making policies that benefit only the ruling class, benefit only the people in power, and don't benefit us. We, we really have to be speaking out loud and clear right now that under, un, under no circumstance should the United States continue this level of aggression. And since Pelosi landed, I really have no idea where this is going to go. But it is not a good direction. And we should all be paying attention as an anti-war movement to not get caught in the lies, to get caught in the anti-China sentiments. We need to be very clear that if the U.S. continues to provoke China, we could see major war. And it's not something to sleep on in every way, shape and form. We cannot allow this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just sick. I mean, just as the propaganda uh, really is sickening. And you're correct, Rachel, when you talk about how the U.S. is, in fact, uh, governed by a dictatorship, a dictatorship of capital. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. And Rachel, speaking of U.S. imperialism, I know that recently you had the opportunity to take a trip to Cuba. I believe you were part of a delegation there. Of course, Cuba, a country that has been under a criminal, uh, wow, not not blockade, but not embargo, but blockade for several decades at this point, for the better part of a century, in fact. And I was hoping you could sort of break down, you know, what you saw there, what where you were able to go, what you were able to do, and just especially what conditions are like on the ground in Cuba at this point, considering not only the ongoing uh, uh, suppression of the blockade, but also with uh, uh, the issues of the COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly, Sean. I mean, I definitely, I'm, I'm literally right back. It was like two days ago I returned and I just wasn't ready to just have capitalism just wash over me like the worst way possible. Just like getting back here and seeing all the advertisements and the sheer amount of inundation of information that we get on a day-to-day basis. And in Cuba, there are no advertisements. You're not being pushed between looking at, do I want to buy this cologne or do I want to buy this alcohol? Do I want to buy this new watch? Like that's not the kind of information that's coming in to your, your subconscious on a daily, regular basis. But anywho, I mean, you know, I was very privileged and very lucky to be a part of of a delegation to Cuba with the Atue project. It's a, it's a new project that is about building relationships in Cuba and in the United States of people, but really in particular about bringing medications for the people of Cuba that are absolutely being, frankly, just destroyed under what I would call a genocidal blockade. The U.S. blockade against Cuba is genocidal. There's really no other way to think about it or put it. The people of Cuba are, are suffering. It is very serious. The economic situations are not good right now. 
by any stretch of the imagination because after COVID-19, the entire world economy took a significant hit. Obviously, we're in a recession in the United States and across the world, there's different levels of, of struggling because of the effects of the pandemic. And so Cuba both had to deal with the economic impacts of the pandemic and has to deal with the fact that the, the initiatives that were put forward by Trump, the, the new additions to the blockade that Trump put forward to, to even further make stricter the kind of laws and regulations included in the blockade absolutely are squeezing the Cuban people dry. I mean, it is, it's horrible what Trump has done in addition to what has always been bad before. I mean, how can you even make it worse? He may, he somehow managed to make it worse. And Biden, the new Biden administration has done nothing about it. I mean, the U.S. strategy towards Cuba is to strangle it. It's to make sure that socialism cannot thrive because if, if Cuba was allowed to thrive without a blockade, it became so apparent to me while I was there that it is truly a place where all people are considered. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. I mean, just seeing when I was there, the, the kind of healthcare system that they have, it really brings tears to your eyes. Like, I mean, I know people in our delegation were actually crying because it's like, I can't imagine in the richest country in the world, how I don't have access to see a doctor any time of the day. And yet Cuba, a country that is struggling so much and has so little, can still do that for its people. I mean, it's it's profound. Like it, when we were there talking to the doctors, they were sharing with us all the different challenges that they have because of the blockade. You know, people say in the U.S. or uh, officials say this or, you know, there's a kind of mythos or mythology in the U.S. that they're a blockade or an embargo or sanctions don't affect medicines. And that's not true. That's not true. And that's not true for Cuba because 10% of any good that's brought into Cuba, if 10% of that good has U.S. made parts, it cannot be brought to Cuba, it cannot be imported into Cuban soil. And so that includes most medical devices. Most medical equipment is manufactured in the United States and the parts are as well. So even 10% of those parts being from the U.S. means that they can't even buy medical equipment from Belgium. They can't buy medical equipment from all the rest of Europe. They have no ability to get medical equipment anywhere else because it was made by the United States. And so they, after COVID, they were really struggling with ventilators, like, like, of course, the U.S. was, but not the way the U.S. was struggling. We struggled in the U.S. because we have a system built for profit and not for people's needs. But for Cuba, they couldn't get ventilators because of this vicious blockade, not because there isn't political will. So, I mean, there's so much to talk about. But the first thing that hit me the most was really seeing the kind of suffering that people have to go through there and how it's directly a result of the U.S., because they have a, a real democracy in Cuba. It was incredible to see that, a real democracy where people are involved on every single level, level the union level, the women's federation level. I mean, on, on the local neighborhood level, people all have an ability to weigh in and have a say and be part of their society and community. And yet the one thing that really stands in the way of this kind of real democratic system flourishing is a blockade that is literally preventing even food from coming to Cuba. Like, for example, the climate has changed so much in the world that in Cuba especially, it's very difficult to be able to produce vegetables because the climate changing also change, changes the amount of seeds that different vegetables produce. And so they can't necessarily continue to plant with what they already have. Same thing with GMOs. GMOs are genetically modified so that way they don't drop seeds at all. And so people in Cuba can't afford to buy the seeds again. And so there is a mass 
mass impact that the blockade has on keeping seeds, GMOs, which are patented by U.S. companies, from coming in to Cuba to help feed thousands and thousands of people. So it just became very stark and very apparent that the, the problems of Cuba, the challenges of Cuba, are not because of political will. The Cuban people have a, a will to serve all of the people of that, that nation, and frankly, the people of the world, the poor and working people of the world. It's because of the U.S. and its absolute horrific blockade. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about the criminal uh, nature of the blockade against Cuba, we can't uh, we can't ignore the fact that the U.S. uses the very conditions that the blockade creates to uh, take advantage of the, you know, the natural discontent of people within Cuba who have a right to petition their government to solve these problems, who I don't know if you experienced this, uh, Rachel, when you talk to people in Cuba the way I did. I mean, even people who were unhappy with the uh, situation with the long lines in the grocery stores and the some of the empty shelves and, you know, the, the high prices for some things and the limited supply of other things and the inability to just get some things like hair products for black women. I mean, People also understand that this is not an issue that exists uh, in any shortcoming of the Cuban government. Even though people are upset about these conditions, most people I encountered understood very well that this was because of the blockade that the United States has imposed against the country. And now there is apparently an energy crisis that is going on that is causing a few small protests, um, you know, in the country. But I mean, I think we can't ignore how the United States will and and we know that they're going to do this because this is what they did last year, going to uh, uh, cynically and opportunistically take advantage of, you know, people's legitimate discontent with conditions that are worsening um, and and use it to claim that this is evidence that the people in Cuba don't like their government and they want change. And then, you know, they'll throw some money at these folks, uh, prop them up as a, a, a pro-democracy movement and use them against the revolutionary government in Cuba, which most people actually support and continue to defend. So I'm wondering if you uh, saw any or had any conversations about the growing energy crisis in Cuba and what are people saying? Certainly, Jackie, that's an excellent question. I think everywhere we went, we dealt with the energy crisis. I mean, the blackouts are widespread and the blackouts happen not because Cuba doesn't want to provide electricity for its people, but because it's very difficult to get access to the kind of materials that are needed to update the energy grid and update the energy system to be able to support as many people that live there and are using things like air conditioning and using things that are necessary for, for living. I mean, it's very challenging. I mean, that's one part of the energy crisis. The other part is access to oil. And that at the end of the day, the blockade prevents Cuba from getting oil from so many sources. I know Russia recently sent over just as donation, you know, I think it was millions, something like millions of barrels of oil. I could be incorrect about that, but it was a very large donation. But even so, it's only going to last Cuba a week. I mean, it's very hard to get access to oil and gasoline. Those things are not easy to come by. And oddly enough, though, gas prices in Cuba are, are cheaper than they are in the United States. And so I don't think it's quite odd at all. I think it's very clear what the 
the U.S. is. But nonetheless, I mean, even with all of those challenges, it's kind of interesting to see that 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 translation is not one to one. But either way, I think that the, the blockade creates a situation of severe challenges in the electrical grids because of those two elements. But also it's because of the fact that Cuba has a commitment. And this was kind of an interesting thing we learned. We were in Via Clara, which is a province in Cuba, and they have a province of a lot of industry. They have multiple different industries that they support there that are really some of the heart and soul of the production of Cuba. And I think that it was really interesting to be in Via Clara and hear from the president of the union, who was the president of the, the Electrical Workers Union, who was talking about the fact that in Via Clara, they have a commitment by 2030 to get to be 100% solar. That's what they want to do with such little. They don't have it. They could have solar panels everywhere in Cuba and it would provide enough energy for everybody because it's not a political will problem. The political will is there in Cuba to go 100% solar. I've never heard in the United States or any other developed nation even a promise of 50% solar. I've never even heard a promise of, uh, of anything more than a tiny percentage of we're going to get away a little bit from fossil fuels, maybe, and continue to use them anyways. I mean, it's absolutely unimaginable to me to think of a government that profoundly and deeply wants to respect the planet, to preserve the planet and provide for its people at the same time. And Cuba did that. They, that's what their promise is to the people. And even every morning on the news, people were telling us that in order to, to survive and live through these kind of blackouts that keep happening, they announce on the news and they try their best to turn the grid off at set times to make sure that they can help reduce the load and make sure that they plan together how the grid is being used so that way there isn't going to be spontaneous blackouts. People are told on the news every morning when the blackouts are going to happen so they can prepare. And that doesn't mean a blackout is something that you want to experience. But I live in New York, in New York, and in New York City, there are blackouts every summer, and they never tell us when it's going to happen. And they have no plans in place. So if it does happen to help protect the elderly or people who are vulnerable or at risk. But by doing it this way, at minimum, with what they have, Cuba can provide for its people, giving people a way to plan around the challenges of the blackouts. And they're even planning to have industry open at different hours and different times to help alleviate the burden of the electrical grid also because they want to make sure that they don't overload it so when people are at home and they most need access to electricity that they will have it so i think and i'll say this in summary not just with electrical issues in cuba but when we're comparing the living conditions of Cuba, we have to be comparing Cuba to Haiti, another country in the Caribbean, which was profoundly and deeply punished by the United States. But we have to compare the, the standard of living to Haiti or to other nations in Latin America. And we need to see it for what it is, that even though Cuba doesn't isn't able to provide what it wants to provide for its people, it has the will to do so. Everyone still gets food, even though it's a lot less than it used to be, and even though the lines are long. And they're, like you said, Jackie, there are a lot of people who do understand that in Cuba, who really do. But the U.S. is taking advantage of that without a doubt. And in particular, I want to talk about this briefly. It's very, it's very insidious because the United States fast tracks Cuban immigrants, which is kind of crazy. I mean, they promised Cuba they'd give them 20,000 visas to have people go to, to visit the United States or even to immigrate to the United States. And 
the U.S. has never made good on that promise in the, the few decades that they, they actually made that promise. They don't actually give out visas. And so people are forced to do kind of illegal migration in a way that's very dangerous. Of course, human trafficking, things like that, that are very challenging to go to Mexico on a boat and come across the border. It's very difficult. But when those when those immigrants arrive, they're given stipends. They're fast tracked as long as they denounce the Cuban government. They're fast tracked and given everything, job placement. They're given housing. They're given opportunities that no other immigrant coming to the U.S. gets. And so now you have a situation where young people in Cuba are sitting at home. They're dealing with blackouts. They're dealing with scarcity. They're dealing with issues and challenges. And now they have cousins calling them from Miami or from the United States saying how great it was and how easy it was that they got a job when they're here and look at our standard of living. And so it's 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 an absolute war on the psyche of the Cuban people. This is about demoralizing and breaking down Cuban people from believing in their revolution. And it's not it's not working. There are still people that are fighting. There's a young communists who are fighting. There are young socialists who are fighting to, to continue the revolution. But it is a challenge that Cuba is facing without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you raising that, uh, uh, Rachel. I mean, you know, uh, patriotism in a country like Cuba means something very, very different than it does in a capitalist, imperialist country like the United States. And I mean, when you were mentioning how there were long lines, you know, for food and all of that and how there's scarcity and just these serious problems, you know, uh, the way we're propagandized in the U.S., people will point to that and say, well, this is the result of socialism. And it's also uh, a consequence of, you know, the supposedly despotic uh, Cuban communist dictatorship or whatever. And in reality, number one, uh, we know that this is directly attributed to the machinations of imperialism that have been attacking this small Caribbean country uh, for several decades at this point. And I'm sure you all remember uh, at the onset of the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic here in the United States. I mean, people were panic shopping. I mean, there was so much confusion. People were just loading up on stuff and hoarding, not even really sure in many cases. And there were also long lines here. There were capitalist bread lines in the United States. That's what they were, capitalist bread lines. And yet you still had people talking about, well, this is what it would be like under socialism when it is literally happening as a result of the contradictions of this capitalist system. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Rachel Hugh is here. And, you know, uh, there's a uh, effort that's uh, afoot here, uh, Rachel, uh, that's calling for the Biden administration to remove Cuba from uh, the terror list, from uh, the, the, the list of uh, state sanctioned, excuse me, state sponsors of terrorism. And the fact that this small socialist island nation in the Caribbean, which I believe has a population of a little over 11 million people, the fact that they could 
somehow be the sponsors of state terror, given that they've been the victims and have been feeling the brunt of real uh, state terror for all these years. I mean, it would be laughable if, you know, all the lives and livelihoods of the Cuban people for all these years hasn't been under siege for all that time. And I mean, you know, it's this classic situation of the U.S. being the instigator, but treating someone else as uh, the culprit. I mean, it reminds me of that Malcolm X quote, and I'm paraphrasing when he talks about how, you know, uh, and I believe he was speaking about the media saying that you having that the criminal is the victim and the victim is the criminal. Well, that's what we're talking about here. It is the United States that has been perpetrating this crime, which is what it is. Just like you say, Rachel, a genocidal blockade. It is Washington that has been perpetrating this against Cuba and its people. Cuba has not, uh, you know, it placed any blockade against the U.S., not that it could, even if it wanted to, but even still. But see, the U.S. is aware of that. It it knows how to weaponize its wealth and its influence and its other resources to try to crush any country or any element that does not fall in line with the whims of Washington. You know what I mean? And so this is why I think it's so important to have a real clarity around imperialism and and just what it is. Certainly, we're seeing that issue as it pertains to China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine in terms of how some folks are uh, uh, sort of grappling with the question of imperialism, who's responsible for it and who is not. And I I feel like that very question really sort of forces us to ask, like, what side are we on? And when I say what side, I'm not even necessarily talking about the governments, because so often when people take these stances, uh, you know, for instance, saying that China or Russia is an imperialist country, they do it supposedly in support of the quote unquote people of that country. It's just like this immersive blob of the people. Uh, uh, who need to be saved or whatever from this uh, government that they claim is imperialist. Well, as we point out on the show, I mean, what that does is fundamentally uh, put people in the same camp as the U.S. State Department and uh, the White House and things like this. And so uh, what I'm really saying is that if what we want is an end to a lot of these conflicts and a resolution of a lot of these contradictions, well, then the the, the precondition for that is the removal of the influence of U.S. imperialism. But as we know, Rachel, imperialism is not going to simply uh, release its grasp on these countries, their lands and their resources voluntarily. Uh, They will have to be fought and they will not go without a fight. And I think that that is a task for humanity, but it is especially a duty for those of us here in the U.S. who are living inside uh, the belly of the beast, quite literally. Yeah, it's absolutely our duty in the United States to fight, to really fight the U.S., both on the level of fighting against the United States government and fighting against the the capitalist system to be able to free the people of the world. I mean, we're not just fighting for our own freedom when we're fighting the the fight here against U.S. capitalism. Like, we are fighting for the liberation of people all around the world. Like, we really have to think about it that way. Our job is not to go and move somewhere that we think is utopian or excellent or great. Like, you know, Cuba's incredible. 
incredible. I mean, in some ways you, you could call it a utopia in some ways, you know, it's a real place with a real process and real challenges, but you know, I, I've never felt more cared about as a human being in my life than when I was in Cuba and there were people telling me to go to the doctor and a place that had, they have so little, they have so little to offer. And yet they still say, here, here are our medical supplies that we want to use because we're worried about the way your foot looks. So we're worried about that, that thing on your arm. Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe you should just get it checked out. I never lived that way in my life. You know, I can't spend money on going to the doctor. So I hold off as long as I possibly can until it's a serious problem. That's not the culture there. They, they tell you to go and, and get cared for. The elderly are cared for there. Whether or not their kids take care of them, society takes care of them. I mean, you just feel on every level when you're there that there's a profound love of humanity and love of each other. And that the society that you live in is structured to benefit the people. And it was real. Every bit of it was real. Every Every way in which I've talked to people about Fidel Castro, who everyone in the U.S. says is a dictator and there's all this misinformation about him. The people of Cuba love him, absolutely love him, absolutely adore him. And that's why they talk about him the way that they do. I mean, it's just there's so much love in the society and it's so apparent and it's so very real. And it was just to be there for even only, you know, 10 days. It was just mind boggling to see that kind of emotional experience where you're treated like a person and your whole person is cared about. And even though things are challenging, there is a deep love and belief in the Cuban project and the process. And so I, I say that to say that in the United States, you know, when we're talking about fighting the capitalist system here, we really have to see that it isn't, we shouldn't just go and say, I want to move to a place like Cuba, because even when you go to Cuba, you don't get away from the United States. It doesn't work that way. The reason why Cuba is suffering is because the U.S. does not want the world to see that socialism works, that it's real, and that it would be better than anything you could imagine. If there was no blockade in Cuba, I, I tell you with my own, cross my heart, I I would say Cuba could be an actual socialist paradise without the blockade. I mean, it's beautiful there. The beaches are incredible. I mean, people spend millions of dollars coming to the Caribbean every single year to vacation. Why would you not? But imagine going to a place where everything is beautiful and, and society is built to meet your needs, where everybody has housing, everybody has food, everybody has the right to see a doctor, the right to health care, the right to live with dignity. I mean, you really feel that it comes through. And so I, you know, our job here in the U.S. is to fight to end the blockade, but it's also to fight to end U.S. capitalism that strangles everyone all around the globe. It is a big order. We can't just run away from it or leave or romanticize and walk away and say revolution isn't possible here or change isn't possible here. That's not true. Revolution is possible in the United States, and it's necessary to really be able to lift the boot off the neck of the working people of the world. And I just felt like coming back, I had so much energy because it's like, wow, man, you know, even for a small moment, you kind of get to feel like what it means to feel like to be a person. Like I got to be a person. I, I got to be valued. I got to be cared for that anxiety that you have in the back of your mind all the time of, can I afford it? If something horrible happens to me, you don't feel that when you're there, it's safe there. It's very safe. Even a poor country, it's very safe to walk in the streets in Cuba. It's mind boggling.
giggling. You, you could not do that in Port-au-Prince. You could not. But you can walk around. You can't even do that in New York City. I don't feel safe walking around in New York City in the way that you feel safe walking around in Cuba. Like there's a different, you know, whether it's fear of being accosted by the police or fear uh, of being catcalled or just the fear uh, of all the different kind of ways in which we experience violence, like mass shootings in the U.S. I, I just don't think we really appreciate the weight, the emotional weight that we all carry with us living here. And going there, it was just surprising to see that lifted. But still, nonetheless, you can't get away from the horrors of what the U.S. does, which has made me double down in my commitment to making sure that we do everything we can to both end the blockade on Cuba in the U.S., but also to end U.S. capitalism once and for all, because it's killing people all around the globe and it's killing us right here at home. And you know what? What you're talking about, about the way Cuba just feels different, the way people are our whole humanity is seen, it's it's uplifted, it's upheld, it's respected. Everything about us, we are, we are treated like human beings in Cuba. And if I hadn't gone and experienced it myself, I would never understand what people mean when they say that. The difference in being treated and seen as a whole human being and, and just with dignity and respect and feeling safe all the time. And I think that is really, really important in the political history of Cuba right now, because they are about to vote, uh, hold a referendum vote on the new family code. I mean, how momentous is this uh, that Cuba, such a small island with, you know, as Sean said, 11 million people um, couldn't really carry out any kind of terrorist attack against anybody if they wanted to. And they seriously do not want to. They want to live uh, in peace and dignity with everyone else in the rest of the world. They are about to do something in their country that in this country, the most powerful, richest nation this planet probably has ever seen, is actually backtracking on. And that is upholding the rights of gay people to be families, to live as families. I mean, I'm wondering if you, again, have did you talk to people about the family code and, and how important uh, um, how important is this to people in Cuba that this is uh, that this referendum is about to take place? Mm. No, it's an excellent question. And we talked a lot about the family code of people. But I think even to back it up a little bit, a, a referendum means that everyone's going to vote on it. I mean, gay marriage is not a right enshrined by law in the United States. It's not. It's not. There's no federal law that protects gay marriage in the U.S. But if you asked the vast majority of people around the country do support gay marriage as a right in the United States. And we have no vehicle. We have no ability and we have no way to vote to protect that right. In the same way, the vast majority of people believe in the right to abortion, whether or not they believe with uh, they believe in gay marriage or believe in abortion is separate. People still in the U.S. believe you have the right to do that. And so I think it's really crazy to me that you could have the majority of people in the United States want to say something, want their laws to be a certain way. And quite literally, they just can't be. 
In Cuba, you directly vote. You directly decide. You say, I want to see the family code put into place. I want to see every single family respected and uplifted. I want everyone to be able to get married. I want everyone to be able to be parents. I want everyone to have access to the same things. And I believe in the inclusivity of all. You have the right to vote for that. And I think what's really interesting about what they're doing right now around the family code in Cuba, they're doing a mass public education campaign telling people to really read the referendum. They're saying, read it for yourself before you make a decision. Because the family code also includes different provisions around elders, different provisions just around how we treat families as a society as a whole outside of LGBTQ issues as well. And so I think it's really powerful because the family code is about including all families. And they really mean that. The family code benefits each and every person in Cuba, whether or not you're an LGBTQ person. And that's some of the most powerful consciousness raising elements of it to me, is that people who may not agree personally with the idea of gay marriage would say, you know what, this benefits all of society. And I believe in benefiting society. And that's most important. And so they're doing a lot of that. And we talk to people in like neighborhoods and transformation, which are neighborhoods that the government is supporting and assisting in developing further and helping to uplift. And in these neighborhoods, you know, people were talking about why in September they're voting for the family code, why they believe in it. And a lot of them, a lot of them didn't even mention LGBTQ issues as the reason. It had to do with all of their provisions in the code itself. It's very expansive. I do recommend people really read it and understand all of what's going on in it. But there's a way to get everyone in society on board. And it, it really brought me to tears thinking about it when I was there, just talking with other people that are, were involved in the gay movement in Cuba, just like thinking about how much work they had done on a local level to change people's hearts and minds and how when you have a socialist society, you can really do that. A revolution within a revolution, as they called it, right? You can fight to change the hearts and minds of people to believe in your humanity and to respect respect you and respect your dignity. And that absolutely has happened in Cuba. There is absolutely, without a doubt, changed hearts and changed minds around LGBTQ issues. There's access to sex, uh, sex reassignment surgeries to affirm trans people. There are even traveling culture troops that bring LGBTQ culture all around the country to share with people, to educate them to know more. I mean, that kind of stuff blew my mind that even when 40, 50 years ago in Cuba, the, the, the attitudes towards LGBTQ issues were radically different. They're more similar to what they are today in the U.S. than they are whatsoever anywhere else. And those, those ideas changed because people fought within their revolution to make it better. And the family code is the culmination of that fight. And it's so empowering to see the U.S. can't even give us federal legislation to protect gay people in America, to protect trans people in America. But the Cuban people can do it because they have a profound and deep respect of their revolution and of each other. And it was just so mind boggling to talk to so many people who are in so much in support of passing this referendum. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, not only does uh, the U.S. not have a leg to stand on the LGBTQ question, because not only are these rights like not enshrined, I mean, literally in this moment right now, we are in the midst of an all out attack on the LGBTQ community in this country, particularly uh, uh, transgender people. And so for, you know, this country to try to point its finger uh, to say that, uh, you know, it, it's somehow some kind of uh, a paragon of LGBTQ liberation or something, I think is 
is just fundamentally uh, not true, to say the very least. I mean, even, you know, you know, not long after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we saw uh, Clarence Thomas uh, start to try to come after gay marriage, which every, which I think a lot of people knew and expected to happen uh, as a part of the implications. And one thing that I also want to note in our last few minutes here, since uh, we are in Black August, is that, you know, the 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 Cuban the Cubans long history of solidarity with the black liberation struggle in the U.S. and around the world. It is Cuba that is protecting and gave asylum to Asada Shakur. Right. Also, uh, Fidel Castro made it a point to raise the uh, uh, the campaigns of uh, U.S. black political prisoners, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal and Shaka Sankofa. You know, not even to mention um, all the different uh, assistance and solidarity that uh, Cuba has given uh, to different liberation movements and struggles in Africa. I'm thinking of Angola fighting, uh, you know, uh, fighting against apartheid and, and, you know, and other aspects of the continent and things like that. I mean, this is is a country that despite its size, despite its resources, the, the fact that it doesn't have as much uh, uh, money or access as the big imperialist powers and are in fact under constant attack from those same imperialist powers to achieve what they have achieved, I think is not only a testament to the Cuban revolution, the socialist Cuban revolution, it's also a testament to that same fundamental deep humanity of the Cuban people that we've been talking about this hour. So what does that mean for us in the United States? It means that we cannot be derelict in our duties to organize this anti-imperialist movement that is not only attacking Cuba and has been, but has its claws sink into people's lands and resources all across this earth. Imperialism is an enemy of humanity. That's how we started talking this hour. And it's appropriate that we end it that way because we're going to have to fight against that anti-human effort. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Rachel Hughes, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with our new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.